Live from the CBS Sports Radio studios in New York City, it's Writer Than You. And welcome back. Thanks, as always, for being with us to your Writer Than You on this Tuesday morning on CBS Sports Radio, on the free Odyssey app on Sirius XM 158. Another day without our namesake, Bill Ryder off again today, so it's Andrew Bogish in for Bill. Not surprisingly, Tom DeCelestino avoiding a day with me face-to-face, head-to-head. So Jack Stern is in charge of the show, which means buy or sell with Jack coming up shortly here. A little later, though, than normal, the show is, um, it has a pattern, it has a rhythm, and normally in segment two of hour two is buy or sell, which sometimes, much to Bill's and DeCell's and my chagrin, takes us way into what should be segment number three to close the hour. But today, actually in the third and final segment, we'll be by ourselves because in segment two this hour, we're going to check in with Hannah Kaiser from Yahoo Sports. And again, part of normally the first, the early game, although there are some Fridays where the games are almost side by side, but normally the game that starts first, Hannah's part of the crew on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, with Melanie Newman, and I guess kind of a rotating analyst sometimes as well. But Hannah's on the show in a couple of minutes. Before we get to Hannah, though, I've I've done something in this studio that I'm immediately regretting. And by the way, these are the Rocket Mortgage Studios. When you need cash out of your home in a simple way to get it, Rocket can. But inside these Rocket Mortgage Studios, the TV lights were on because the DA show before us is streamed on WatchDA. on YouTube, on Twitch. This show is not. So the TV lights are extra bright. They make the room a little warmer. And since we're not on video, I walked over to the room as we were coming back from break and I turned off the TV lights. And I sat back down and was like, oh, it's kind of dark in here. And then Jack gets in my ear and goes, we going spooky for the rest of the show? And it's now, I have gone, now I'm almost in like a dark cave. So, like, some lights are on, some are off. We're, like, in the weird twilight, and I can barely see Jack through the window. Immediately regretting the light switch change. Do you want me to come in and turn the lights back up a no, little bit? No, I'll get used to it, but I, I, I'm just startled by how dark it got in here. I think there are other normal lights not on that I expected to be on, because normally the TV lights just take it from, like, an 8 to a 10, on the brightness scale, but this is now like at a four. It's bizarre in here now. It's only 11 o'clock in the morning here back on the East Coast, and it feels like it's 1 a.m. at at night with the the lights all dimmed down. You're right. This feels like a nighttime weekend show all of a sudden when it's like, and I am wearing shorts and sneakers, and it is kind of empty outside, but it does feel like a weird night vibe that I accidentally created. But we're going to push through it. You and I are tough. We're professionals. We're going to figure this out. And we're going to begin with Lamar Jackson. So last week it was an annual ESPN poll of 50 NFL whatevers. And they went position by position, the top whatever. And all hell broke loose when Lamar Jackson, I think was number 11 on that list. How is he not top 10? And I was one of those people. And the top four to me is set in stone. And I think after the top four, there is arguments for a lot of, and the top four, by the way, Rodgers, Brady, Mahomes, and Josh Allen. And then the next batch of guys is, in my mind, Lamar Jackson, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Matthew Stafford, 
Deshaun Watson in some particular order, but almost any of them could start at number five or go all the way back to number 10. So when push came to shove, Lamar being number 11 on that list was not necessarily a huge punch in the face to him, but it was a little dismissive, especially because Deshaun Watson is ahead, was ahead of him, is ahead of him, and didn't play last year, and we don't know how many games he's going to play this year. So it was a little odd to have him in front of Lamar Jackson. But a lot of people went to bat for Lamar, saying that this is nonsense because of what was said about him that had him at number 11 on that list. And here we are again, because yesterday the Athletic puts out a list of its top 25 quarterbacks, talking to 50 people around the NFL, coaches, execs, front office people, scouts, whatever. And their list has Lamar at number 10, so he's inside the top 10. So we're not having that particular battle. But this list, more than one through whatever, is a tiered list. And tier one, not surprisingly, is basically those handful of guys that I just, those four guys that I just mentioned. Rodgers, Mahomes, Brady, Josh Allen. And then we get into tier two, and tier two is, off the top of my head, it's Herbert, Burrow, Stafford, Watson, and eventually get to Lamar Jackson at number 10. But he's in tier two. And within this tier two breakdown, and I just want, want to make sure, and why would I have it in front of me as we're about to talk about it, the specific language used in breaking down these tiers for where everybody is. And it's about, you know, the team, the team wins because of him. And he handles all pe- pure passing situations perfectly. Which are, I mean, those are kind of non-definable, arbitrary things about Lamar Jackson or anybody really on the list. Those are not things you can necessarily put into a computer and it spits out that this is what this guy is, number five, number 11, number one, number two. But in one of the paragraphs breaking down Lamar Jackson is an NFL unnamed defensive coordinator saying he could win 12 MVPs and he still wouldn't be tier one for me. Now, I I think that's just hard for me to compute on the very surface, on a simple point that if this guy playing quarterback won a dozen MVPs and he's already got one, so we'd be at 11 more, I think that would make him tier one. But statements like that are what take us into a different conversation that there just seems to be some built-in dislike for Lamar Jackson. I think part of that is just kind of the old-school mentality that he doesn't play the position correctly in people's mind. He's not a traditional quarterback and that he runs too much and that he puts himself in danger by running. And I'll admit, I have that concern for Lamar Jackson like I'd have it for any quarterback who doesn't know how to keep himself out of danger. Because there's a difference between just being a running athletic quarterback and a guy that puts himself in danger of taking hits. And we had this conversation about Andrew Luck recently, too, on these airwaves. 
in that great athletic six-part podcast series about Andrew Luck and the rise and fall and what did we learn from all of this? And what I learned in particular was things like, you know, one of the things I didn't remember about Andrew Luck in the moment then was how bad Andrew Luck was at protecting Andrew Luck. That my first thought when Andrew Luck's name came up was always about what the Colts didn't do around him. Bad decisions in free agency, in the draft, never figured out the offensive line, never got the best pieces around him until the end. But Andrew Luck kept getting Andrew Luck hurt to a certain extent. Wouldn't even stop chasing down guys after he threw an interception. He thought he had to make the tackle, leading with his right shoulder sometimes, because he threw the pick. So, I mean, that's a, that's a different conversation. But Lamar Jackson running and being productive as a runner and the Ravens using him as a runner because he's that kind of weapon, that doesn't disqualify him from any of these conversations, nor is it a thing that needs to be held against him this strongly. The guys won an MVP. The guy's record as a starter during the regular season is like 30-8. and eight. This last year was a disaster. For a lot of reasons. Some were on his hands, but most of them were on an offensive line that was never never healthy. And then running backs who could never stay healthy. They were down there top three running backs, a left tackle. There are almost no quarterbacks on this planet who could survive with the pieces like that broken around him. It's just not feasible. And a quarterback other than Lamar Jackson in the same situation, broken offensive line, missing running backs, underdeveloping, disappointing, bust receivers around him that would have gotten all of the sympathy and every last benefit of the doubt that Lamar Jackson has really never gotten. And that's another thing that's on the list of you know knocks on him that have kind of all been disproven going back to this original list that he didn't play well late in the season. He didn't play well late in last season because no Raven did, and then he got hurt and didn't play in December. So if you take out last year, and you can go back and compute fourth quarter numbers, December numbers, the idea that Lamar Jackson wasn't good late in games or late in seasons is just not statistically supported. And then this time around, in this athletic list, they talk about handling, again, this kind of undefinable, perfect passing situation, and you go back and you throw some numbers in, and Lamar Jackson's like top five, top four in all of these different scenarios. The one thing that's legitimately a knock on Lamar Jackson that Lamar Jackson needs to fix and the Ravens need to fix is he has not played well in the postseason. Four postseason games, one win, and like, you know, one really bad game, one good game, and then the other two that were kind of in the middle, but not good enough for him and not good enough for the Ravens. And he's a negative TD to turnover ratio. I think it's four to seven in those four playoff games. But we've seen other players have bad playoff games and are allowed, given the, the, the latitude, to fix them. Or he'll figure this out. He's still 24, 25, 26. He's got time. The Ravens aren't going anywhere. But there's really no... And sympathy seems like the wrong word. But there's no forgiveness for Lamar Jackson. And there's no explaining away 
Lamar Jackson issues by pointing to other valid reasons for them. When Patrick Mahomes has had bad games, and this has come up since yesterday, you know, he played a Super Bowl with a broken offensive line. And nobody said that Patrick Mahomes stunk in those in that game. And no one started to deduct points off ranking systems. Nobody knocked them out of that top tier of quarterbacks. But when Lamar Jackson plays behind an offensive line that is missing key cogs and can't block anybody, that's Lamar Jackson's fault. And it hurts Lamar Jackson in, again, lists that don't matter in any possible way. But they keep coming out with these lists, and we keep getting fairly unfair. And there has to be, it's part of the conversation, what percentage, we'll never know. But there's no doubt that part of the knock on Lamar Jackson, or part of the reason why people take these shots at him, there is racism involved in here. It just, it is what it is. It could be 2%, it could be 40%, it could be 80%, but it's there. It's part of this mix. It's part of the reason why people don't hesitate to knock this guy down. He has his knocks. I don't think he's the elite of elite, but he's firmly inside my arbitrary top 10. And just like with Kyler Murray in Arizona, the Ravens need to just pay him because they're going to be hard-pressed to find somebody who's better than a guy who's already got an MVP on his resume and has won a playoff game. That combination at his age a couple years ago, there's a short list of guys who have done that to be sub-24, have a playoff win and an MVP on their resume. And Lamar Jackson's on that list. And the one time he was truly ineffective was this past season when he had almost no help. It's okay to point out the flaws. It's okay to say he's not even Josh Allen, let alone Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers. But you don't need to go so far in the other direction with this dude. And, you know, it's easy to go, he's just got to make a little bit more than Kyler Murray. He's got to make a a good chunk more money than Kyler Murray because he's that much better than Kyler Murray if we're comparing salaries. The number of Murray's 160 mil guaranteed is the starting point, but you don't need to tack on like a couple hundred grand just to pass that. Like, Lamar Jackson is a couple mil better than Kyler Murray when you line them up. 855-212-4CBS, 855-212-4227. A lot of football in the first 80 minutes or or so of this show. We switched to baseball. We'll talk to Hannah Kaiser, Yahoo Sports and Apple TV Plus, when we come back on Writer Than You on CBS Sports Radio. You're listening to the Writer Than You podcast. Welcome back, Rodder Than You, on this Tuesday morning here on CBS Sports Radio and the free Odyssey app. Andrew Bogish in for Bill until the top of the hour. The free AutoZone Fix Finder service can help troubleshoot the likely cause of your pesky check engine light for free and get you back on the road. Restrictions apply. Get in the zone. AutoZone. As promised, we're talking baseball right now on the guest line for the first time today. She covers baseball for Yahoo Sports, for Apple TV+. Plus. It is Hannah Kaiser. Hannah, it's Andrew in New York. Thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Um, so let me begin. It was your question last week that got Rob Manfred to say that he rejects the notion that minor league players are not paid a living wage. I'm not surprised he's defending his bosses, defending baseball, but why is he so 
bad at picking the absolute wrong words and examples to defend their position. <laughs> um, well, that would require me to psychologize <laughs> what Rob Manfred is like. Honestly, I think the, why is he so bad is because he doesn't like to, uh, well, even though he rejected the premise, he doesn't like to evade a question entirely and likes to, likes to prove that he can uh, win this fight. So I think that's why he tries to engage with these things and, and often embarrasses himself in the process. Um, this was a, uh, this, so this is an interesting one because the minor league issue has been something that, that the commissioner's office has been particularly touchy about for a really long time. Um, and some of that is like a little bit well-deserved. They feel like they are in the midst of a long process of trying to make everything as they called it at one point, one baseball and bring the minor leagues under the major league umbrella and have more control. And, and they have a lot of, big plans for how it's going to pan out, but they are of all the things that they sort of get criticized for this is probably the most valid. I mean, there's sort of virtually no reason for someone, for anyone in this industry to be not paid enough to keep themselves and potentially even a family afloat. Right. Um, and, and I just think that that's that the touchiness they have around it is indicative of something. And I don't exactly know what it is. I mean, the, the question that I asked him, and this sort of frustrated me in the exchange, was, you know, he honed in on, well, I think they are making a living wage. And I responded, I said, well, do you reject the notion that there are significant efforts being made to get them paid more? Like that is sort of regardless of whether or not Rob Manfred himself or Rob Manfred on behalf of the 30 owners is fine with how much they're paying the minor leaguers. A lot of people are not. And those people are not just minor leaguers. I mean, there's been a rise of advocacy groups and, and uh, of former players and current players, but they're also sort of taken legal action that's landed on their side. They, they just want to, they just settled a big class action um, about like wage laws and overtime. And now there's this sort of Senate judiciary committee investigation into MLB's antitrust exemption and how that affects the minor leagues. So, whether or not I'm asking Rob about it or not, it is something they are going to have to answer for like pretty soon in a very public forum about sort of what is the justification for uh, paying these guys so little. Right. And it's not even, it's not just like an opinion thing. Like most of these guys make, I think it was it's less than 1400 bucks over the five month season or 14,000. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a lot. And it's like provable through math that it's not a quote-unquote living way. Like, it's it's not a thing he actually can dismiss. He can sell me on that they're, you know, providing more housing and stuff like that now. He can pick and choose what they're proud of and, and jam it down our throat. But to fight back something that's, like, provably correct, it just it's just so annoying as a baseball fan that he continues to make the game look bad in, such, in situations like this. And it's not good for the game that these right. guys are paid like it is, it's minor league baseball. First of all, minor league baseball serves a lot of purposes, and one of which is just it brings baseball to towns that don't have major league baseball teams. Like these are, in fact, professional baseball games that people go to and people enjoy. And it's, I mean, there are a lot more minor league teams than there are major league teams. So people, someone is going to these games and they're enjoying these guys, and they are, you know, if you if you were playing against them in a beer league league you wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between <laughs> like a triple a guy and a major league guy. like they're really good at baseball that's i think that is you know one of the 
the points that gets lost in all of this is that like you know when you watch baseball you think the worst guy on my team oh my god he sucks at baseball and the guys in the minors are even worse than him but like those guys were the best at baseball everywhere they went yeah. so they're pretty good at baseball it's good it's, it's pretty good baseball but beyond that you know it's bad for baseball that they that they're only paid in season and they don't make enough in season to support themselves probably even in season, but certainly not for the entire year. And, and MLB can sort of argue, well, it's an apprenticeship and all that. But that's like willfully disingenuous at this point because no one involved in the modern game thinks that these guys are just like chilling in the off season. Like that's not, you know what I mean? Like we, and anyone who's paying attention to baseball at a major league level understands so much of basically every improvement they're making is at some, you know, fancy specialized laboratory like driveline in the offseason. Like there's a lot of work that goes into being a good baseball player, a successful baseball player that happens in the offseason. A lot of training, a lot of <laughs> a lot of going somewhere highly specialized. And if you want the guys who are not at the major league level to get to that level, you do have to allow them to sort of dedicate themselves truly professionally to playing major league baseball. This is Hannah Kaiser, Yahoo Sports, with us this morning on Writer Than You here on CBS Sports Radio. Now we get to yesterday's non-agreement for an international draft. It leaves the qualifying offer system still in play. It's a big deal for baseball, for future players, for current players. But we've also seen these two sides, the league and the union, kind of recreate deadlines. So is this is this done, done for now, done forever? Where does this actual debate stand, Hannah? Well, this finalizes, this is, this, this is a real deadline. The deadline has passed. They are not. They did not extend the deadline. And so now those CBA negotiations from the off season that everybody remembers so not fondly, they're officially done. We actually haven't like gotten a full text of the collective bargaining agreement yet because of this outstanding qualifying issue, qualifying offer issue and international draft issue. So now all of that is complete. This was like the last deadline for that. But these particular issues are not going away. The qualifying offer. They can't really, I don't think, do anything about until the next CBA negotiation. It'll be on us sooner than you think, though. The international draft issue is one that is more rolling. I mean, the draft itself, they, they're not going to do that now. MLB has been trying to get it. The league has been trying to get it for a long time. I'm sure they will bring it up again in the next CBA negotiation. But the issue of sort of how international amateurs enter the sport, that's an ongoing issue. And sort of whether or not MLB, as a as an institution can or should do more to crack down on corruption, whether or not like they should, there's something that they can do that involves working with the union to get some sort of overseeing committee in place. Like they're going to continue, I think to talk about that. And, and that's going to be an issue between now and then. Um, But it's not going to get solved with a draft for at least another five years. All right, now some actual baseball. Does Juan Soto get traded by the deadline or in the offseason in your mind? I think the offseason. I think the offseason. I think that there's been a lot of talk about how sort of, you know, you, it's Juan Soto's value at such a young age, um, at such a, as such a productive player, and especially at two and a half years left of team control, is almost incalculable. And I think that that's actually almost working against them. I think the the Nationals reportedly are sort of, they're just entertaining offers. They're trying that they're not getting involved in any back and forth with any one team. They're just sort of, you know, make us an offer. We'll see if we like it. And I don't think they're going to necessarily get anything good enough. I think, I almost think that Juan Soto at two and a half years, and as everyone points out, sort of three postseason runs, 
that's almost too good. You can't make professional right. an offer that makes that worth it to them. I could be wrong. I, I as time goes on and as it starts to, you know, you start to see people, other smart people in the industry float potential deals. I get a little bit more convinced that that he'll get moved at the deadline. But I think there's a lot of factors sort of working against that. One is just they kind of made this decision, not last minute, last minute, but he hasn't been on the market all that long. The team is getting sold. Um, you could argue that that's a reason to trade him. So they don't, the new owners don't have to be the ones to trade him. But I also think that's a reason for um, the learners who are on the team now and Mike Rizzo, the general manager, that's a reason for them to sort of have really high standards. You know, they, they can afford to sit back, let people come to them. And if they don't like any of the offers, they don't have to take them. And then it becomes somebody else's problem, at least for the learners. Um, so that's, those are the reasons I think he might, I'm leaning ever so slightly towards he gets moved in the offseason. When, when one of kind of the rumor roundups I was reading yesterday, there was a reference to, you know, some of his numbers are down this year, especially on defense. And it was attributed to him kind of being in a bad mood because of all this going on and that they'll, re- they'll go back to normal if he gets traded and he's in a new situation. And it glossed over that a little too much from my mind. Like, not that I'm, I wouldn't trade everything for Juan Soto, but it made me go, huh, things haven't gone well for the, you know, for a little bit here in Washington and he's pouting and it's not a big deal. Like what if I trade for him and things happen? Is he going to be pouty around my organization? Is there, is there any pushback on, on stuff like that with Soto that you've heard? I thought that was a, that was a, a strange accusation. That's a bold accusation to make unless you know it for sure. So I'm not going to sort of comment specifically on that because I don't know his mindset. I saw him at All-Star. He did, in fact, seem a little disappointed. He seemed genuinely um, hurt at how the negotiations with the team got leaked right before All-Star. So I understand that. I I mean, whether or not he's cranky or or sort of pouting, to me, feels a little bit different than whether or not the team itself has sort of like anything to play for. And that is, like, they're a really bad team this year. And I think that might, that's, I mean, you know, that's something that I don't think any team that would go out and get Juan Soto is planning on being the worst team in baseball at any (laughs) point in the next couple of years. So I think we don't need to worry about that one too much. All right, last one, and this might be the most important question I'm going to ask you this morning. I click on your name at Yahoo Sports to just see your bio. Is there anything interesting there that I wanted to bring up? And the one of the last lines is, hot dogs are, she thinks, dot, 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 hot dogs are an embarrassment to the game of baseball. I don't like I'm going to need an explanation. They're too smooth, you know? They're like solidified meat pudding inside a rubber. I don't like it. <laughs> so... I just, I was at Wrigley two weekends ago for the first time since I was a kid and had my first Chicago dog. And it was kind of life-changing. So I'm having a, I I don't know if I can sign up for disparaging any kind of hot dog right now. Well, here's the thing. I just came from All-Star where the only food they had for us in the press box was like a trough of Dodger dogs. And people were telling me that the Dodger dogs have been taken over by, like, the Dodgers. It used to be a different company. Yes. And that the Dodger dogs are bad now, and they are. I got, I got to say that I, I tried to eat a Dodger dog, and I did not enjoy it. Yeah, so I, I've, I've... Maybe they used to be better. They, no, they, they have. In fact, uh, I heard about this. Uh, Jason Bateman on his Smartless podcast talked about this, that in this last year and this year, there's a new supplier, 
and they're bad. And it's like a yeah. big Dodger controversy that maybe like the nation needs to know about to get it fixed. So, okay, well, then in that case, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing, I'm shining an important light on the fact <laughs> that hot dogs are not getting a good representation in Los Angeles right now because people like me who are already hot dog skeptical are showing up to Dodger Stadium willing to try a Dodger dog and leaving disappointed. All right, well, hopefully we can fix this and find some common ground on the hot dog front. Hannah, this was fun. Thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's Santa Kaiser, Yahoo Sports, uh, and Apple TV Plus as well. Doesn't have a game this weekend, but be back in the booth uh, at some point down the road in the summer. You're listening to the Writer Than You podcast. Welcome back. It's Writer Than You on this Tuesday morning on CBS Sports Radio and the free Odyssey app. Andrew Bogish in for Bill. Mr. Ryder is back in this chair tomorrow. Jack Stern filling in for Tom DeCelestino today. DeCel should be back tomorrow as well we are almost done this morning buy or sell is on the way and phone lines are open at 855-212-4CBS 855-212-4227 but before all of that it's time for the defensive player of the week it's sponsored by the navy federal credit union who proudly serves the armed forces dod veterans and their families they're members of the mission learn more at NavyFederal.org. Aaron Judge, Aaron Judge, nine hits, four of them homers, 11 RBI, a 474 batting average. He continues to play pretty good defense for the Yanks in right or center field. He is our NFCU Defensive Player of the Week. And as we said, phone lines are open at 855-212-4227. So let's say hello to Matt in Rochester, New York. Matt, you're on Rider Than You. What's going on? Hey, Andrew, good morning. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you. Uh, I contacted you a little while ago about a book recommendation for my dad for his birthday. We ended up getting the Dan Shaughnessy Celtics book, which he loved. Oh, awesome. Um, I just wanted to comment on a Hannah Kaiser interview. So I'm in upstate New York. Um, before the pandemic, I lived in Syracuse for about six years. So I used to go to the Syracuse Mets, formerly the Syracuse Chiefs game. Now I'm in Rochester, and uh, we're actually going to the Rochester Red Wings game tomorrow. I just kind of wanted to uh, piggyback on what Hannah said for people that, you know, want to see baseball and don't live in major league uh, cities. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think DeGrom just had a uh, outing in Syracuse. I think he might be scheduled for another one if he hasn't had it already. Yeah, tomorrow in Syracuse. Actually, yeah, tomorrow in Syracuse again, yes. There you go. And I think Steven Strasburg might have done a rehab stint in Rochester before he went back up to the major leagues. Uh, but, again, I just wanted to kind of reinforce what you said is that, you know, we all can't make it to Major League ballparks, and the best we can do is some of these minor league places, and hopefully, you know, everything stays intact. I know they're looking to contract at some point, but, um, you know, sometimes the best you can do is just go to your, you know, double-A, triple-A affiliate and uh, have a good time. Yeah, exactly, and they, they did do the first bit of contraction already, and some of that, if I'm being honest, made – a little bit. Matt, thanks so much for the call. Um, some of it made sense to me from a purely kind of heartless, like logistical standpoint. Some of these leagues were so spread out. Travel was terrible. There are places that were struggling to support a team, have newish stadiums, have, you know, up to date kind of amenities and, and framework and structure for players. So I, I understood baseball's argument to a certain extent in cutting back a little bit, streamlining more, like I, I could barely accept that. But, you know, the idea that these guys are being paid correctly is just not true. And 
you could never pay them enough to measure up to the effect they have on the game. Because even if you live, I, I live in New York, and we've been to City Field to see the Mets this year. We went to Chicago to see the Mets play at Wrigley Field. But we've also gone to the Brooklyn Cyclones game in Coney Island, famous Coney Island here in New York City. It's the Mets High A affiliate. And that's great for us because it's different than City Field because you can sit like right behind the dugout and see the game up close and you get to see players before they're in the majors. Like my my son daughter know who Francisco Alvarez is before he was maybe the number one prospect in baseball because we watched him hit home runs last year up close in Brooklyn and said that guy's going to be on the Mets soon. And now he might be on the Mets this year. Like this is how you make fans. And... To do anything to hurt minor league baseball or to not compensate minor league baseball correctly is just all sorts of negative things by baseball. All right, without further ado, later than normal on this Tuesday morning, it's time for Buy and Sell. What side will Bill take on the biggest issues in the world of sports? It's time for today's edition of Buy or Sell on Writer Than You. All right, Andrew, let's kick things off in Chicago, where the mayor of the city, Lori Lightfoot, proposed that Soldier Field add a dome amidst a slew of new renovations. The dome would, of course, eliminate home field advantage as their oppositions would no longer have to come play in the hostile, cold environment. Theoretically, this could lead to other teams putting domes up as well. Think about maybe the Buffalo Bills or the Green Bay Packers at Lambeau considering adding a dome. Andrew, are you buying or selling domes taking away the fun of late-season games? I mean, I'll buy that specifically for the regular season, Jack. Buy! And this is a proposal by the city to keep the Bears at Soldier Field. The Bears have already purchased land, I think it's like 30 miles outside the city, so suburban Chicago to maybe build the stadium of their dreams. But here's what the city is prepared to do to keep the Bears in Soldier Field, in Chicago proper, so to speak. And there are three different plans suggested by the city yesterday. And basically all of them, either immediately or down the road, would lead to a a, a roof over Soldier Field. Now, I would hope that roof would have the ability to be also open air, a little retractable, move the windows, the panes, whatever it is, and get some of that cold air in there. But... What I don't think will happen, Lambeau's never going to have a roof. The Bills are getting a new stadium from New York New York State, and it's not going to have a roof. If the Bears do this, they're going to be kind of on an island. The other super cold-weather teams that don't have roofs currently, I can't see them following suit if the Bears go down this road because you need this in December and in January. I'm going to go a little bit against the grain here, Andrew, and say that everyone playing in a cold environment should get a roof. I understand it's like part of the stadium and part of going and having to play there, but having guys huddled around these warm heaters when it's <laughs> 10 degrees or seeing it snowing and hearing about fans in danger, that's not what this sport is about. So I, I do at times think that like the more important games need to be played in sterile environments so that just the players decide them and not rain, wind, snow, whatever. But that's maybe only for the Super Bowl. The only reason why a dome makes sense when you are building a new venue is to make the venue usable 365 days of the year. Again, sitting here in New York, miles away from the completely useless MetLife Stadium, it would be a little bit better 
if it had a roof over it so there could be things inside of it, not during football season when you wanted to be warm and dry. You could play college basketball games in there. You could have concerts all year long. But instead, they spend so much money on a completely ugly, plain, no-personality stadium that doesn't even have the roof to help them do things like that. All right, let's move on to the baseball diamond now. We were just talking about minor league baseball, so let's stay there. Mets catcher Mike Piazza Piazza yesterday went on Carton and Roberts on WFAN here in New York and talked about his beef with former Yankees ace Roger Clemens. The only thing that, for me, that I didn't really like was the whole thing about um, that they were, again... Remember, they were switching the rotation so he wouldn't play yeah. at Shakespeare. Stadium yeah, they were afraid. And he wouldn't hit. Yeah. Whereas, I think finally, it was the funniest thing because then it got to a point to where myself, personally, I was like, ah, you know what? I don't even give a crap anymore. It's like, let's just keep, you know, it is it is what it is. It's, it's sort of like the moments passed. But if he would have done it right away, we would have hit him, you know, in the back and it would have been over. And right. that's, that would have been the rules of the day and it would have been a big deal. But then when it got when it dragged on and it just made it this whole sort of Roman gladiator, you know, Colosseum mentality. It was just like taken away from the game, in my opinion. So that's what I got a little bit bummed about. And then finally, of course, Sean threw behind him. (laughs) Now, it's important to put things in context here. Clemens and Piazza beefed during the 2000 World Series. I think this is kind of resurfaced surfaced as there's expectations that there could be a uh, Subway Series here in New York once again. 2000 World Series, of course, involved the Yankees and Mets. Clemens threw a broken bat behind Piazza in Game 2. Sean Estes threw behind Clemens, I believe it was two years later, adding fuel to the fire in this situation. Are you buying or selling Estes as the true villain here, Andrew? (laughs) Yeah, at least for me, let's buy that bad boy. Buy. Because as Mike was saying to Craig and Evan yesterday, it took a long time for the Mets to have the ability to get quote-unquote revenge. And then Sean Estes, who is a lefty journeyman, probably best known for being a giant but he was a Met at this stage long overdue after the 2000 Subway Series. And that was kind of act two for Clemens and Piazza. The first one was during that regular season when Clemens put a fastball to the side of Piazza's head at the game of Yankee Stadium that I was at. Um, then the the broken bat throw. But then it was, of all people, at City Field, Sean Estes, Estes, whatever, who had no connection to the Mets, the Yankees, or the rivalry, nothing. He is tasked with hitting Roger Clemens, which would have accomplished really nothing, but something had to be done, and he missed him. He couldn't hit him. It was so peak met, and it is to this day, it's the first thing I think of about this situation, not Piazza, not Clemens. It's Sean Bleep and Estes unable to hit Clemens when a Met finally had a chance to do it. Would we be having this conversation in the first place if there wasn't an anticipated rematch, though? Like, no one knows who Sean Estes is here in New York. Everyone knows who Roger Clemens is. Obviously, one of the best pitchers in Yankees history. Piazza's probably the best catcher in Mets history. I didn't even know who he was. I had to look him up to put this segment well, together. I'll how old were you in 2000? Uh, three or years 2001. old. 2001. I mean, this is the problem. You were a baby. Now, anyone that's old enough to remember those encounters knows Sean Estes immediately because it was so embarrassing and so infuriating and so Mets that this doof couldn't actually hit Clemens with multiple fastballs to get any kind of revenge for Piazza. I mean, it's just, again, it was peak Mets. Had their chance, finally, and this guy couldn't actually do it.
Amazing, amazing. All right, let's go back to minor league baseball. All right, the summer is starting to wrap up. It's the end of July, which means August is coming. August only means that September is also getting closer. It's time to start knocking off items on the summer bucket list. Sounds like minor league baseball has gotten a ton of traction here on Writer Than You this morning. Are you buying or selling minor league baseball as the must-do, can't-miss activity to partake in before summer is over? Could, could not buy this any faster. Absolutely. Buy. Whatever it is, affiliated games, independent leagues, there's a bunch of college leagues. Um, you know, there's ones in the upper Midwest. There's one famously at Cape Cod in Massachusetts that I know of well here living in the Northeast. Wherever you can find non-Major League Baseball, where the price is going to be down, a chance to glimpse the future, some crazy food options and other kind of novelties around these games, giveaways, run the bases after the game, fireworks night, all the gimmicky stuff these teams do, that's minor league baseball. I'm a Brooklyn Cyclones guy to the core as well. How could you not be? Having lived in Brooklyn, I think they have the best stadium in minor league baseball. I might be biased. But I also want to pour out an entire bottle of wine for the Staten Island Yankees because they were the best minor league baseball team my entire childhood. And then they were discontinued. <laughs> they were discontinued for some like shady political reasons that had to do with taxes on the stadium. And now they've rebranded and resurfaced as the Ferry Hawks. They're not affiliated with anyone anymore, though, which is really sad. Correct. And to get very, very, very specific, if you're in the Long Island area, you can see the Long Island Ducks host those Staten Island Ferry Hawks tonight in Bethpage. And after hearing his updates this morning, you can hear Peter Schwartz introduce the batters as the PA voice for the Ducks tonight if you got nothing else to do. For now, we're done. Thanks to Hannah Kaiser, to Jack Stern, for Ryder, for D-Cell. I'm Bogus. Have a great Tuesday. We'll see you tomorrow on Ryder Than You.